Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, author Jennifer Van Horn. Her new book is Portraits of Resistance, Activating Art During Slavery. It was recently published by Yale University Press. Portraits of Resistance investigates American portraiture, a discipline which, until recently, was dominated by European-American artists and their wealthy, self-image-creating clients. The book discovers within some of these portraits and the artists who made them histories of Black resistance, agency, viewership, and even iconoclasm. While the book primarily focuses on the era before the Civil War, it also reaches well into the 20th century. Amazon and IndieBound offer portraits of resistance for about $60. On the second segment, Elizabeth Kornhauser on a new installation of portrait miniatures at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But first, Jennifer Van Horn, after the break. I'm delighted to announce the next Modern Art Notes podcast live taping. It'll be with artist Monique Verdun at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University on February 16th. Verdun is among the artists featured in Spirit in the Land, a forthcoming Nasher exhibition that examines present ecological concerns from a cultural perspective and that demonstrates how our identities and natural environments are intertwined. We'll be presenting the live taping in association with the folks at the Nasher at 4 p.m. on Thursday, February 16th, the day the exhibition opens to the public. Please join us for Monique Verdan and Spirit in the Land on February 16th at the Nasher. As the Princeton University Art Museum constructs a new building, set to open in 2024, more than 100 works of American art from its collection are traveling the country in the exhibition Object Lessons in American Art on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through May 14th. Spanning the 18th century to the present, Object Lessons features works of Euro-American, African-American, and Native American art, and illustrates how fresh investigations and contemporary perspectives can inform and enrich its meaning. With these objects, the exhibition asks fundamental questions about artistic significance and how meaning changes across time, place, and context. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about the exhibition or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Jennifer Van Horn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Portraits of Resistance opens by telling and promising to interrogate one of the most famous stories in American art. And that's the story that Gilbert Stewart told about how he learned how to draw people. What is that story? Oh, it is such a such a canonical story. So 
this is a story that Gilbert Stewart tells when he comes back to Newport after he's already kind of made it as this transatlantic portrait painter who's painting wealthy elites and once he comes back to the United States, painting members of this new elite political republic. And Stewart tells the story that he originally learned how to draw a face, as, as he would put it, from an enslaved man, uh, Newport or Neptune Thurston, who was enslaved by Stewart's neighbors on the wharf in Newport, Rhode Island. And Stewart, you know, says basically that this is kind of the origin moment for him to, to learn how to, to paint, well, to draw a portrait. He talks a little bit about the, the materials that Thurston is using, that he's drawing in chalk. So it, it's this kind of moment where we have this very vivid image, I think, of an enslaved man who is putting representations onto barrels. And he's enslaved as a cooper. So he's producing barrels, probably as for part of Newport's export trade. And he's also sketching these faces and then putting those onto the, the tops of these barrels. And then... Stuart talks about having learned how to do that from, from Thurston, and he has some pithy line about how Thurston would have been a better painter than Stuart ever was had, I don't remember what, what Stuart's exact quote is, but something like had their roles been reversed or had their positions in society had been reversed. You call Thurston's unknown, unpreserved drawings on hogsheads um, a hogshead is the end, the flat end of a barrel, if you will. You call them portraits of resistance. It's where we get the title. It's where you get the title of the book. How might possibly Thorsten's unknown and unpreserved drawings have worked in that kind of way? That's one of the the things that was really interesting to sort of think through um, around Thurston is just the absence of survival of these physical artifacts of these works of art. In thinking through this story, you know, I was just struck by how many Stuart paintings we have that survive, hundreds of them, and the fact that we didn't have a physical example of Thurston's work to be able to reference or to turn to. So for me, that that was an invitation to think imaginatively, to, to think speculatively, turning to what I could kind of triangulate about what these now lost images might have looked like. For me, the, the big shift was in thinking more about who would have come into contact with these hogsheads, with these barrels, because the, the way the story is always told is Gilbert Stewart's view of this. And so I think it, it channeled that incident into a story about Gilbert Stewart. Whereas if we think about Neptune Thurston, you know, yes, uh, he later claims that he, in fact, is the person who taught Stuart to draw. So he is claiming that that dissemination of, of knowledge. But he also is uh, potentially putting these portraits onto hogsheads for for reasons not related to Gilbert Stewart at all. So one of the things that I that I think about in the introduction is who's coming into the the closest contact with these barrel barrel born portraits and uh, knowing who's working in wharf spaces around the Atlantic world that's predominantly enslaved people of African descent or free black people who are working in docks who are loading ships who are unloading ships who are the folks who are 
are, you know, rolling these huge barrels uh, laden with sugar and molasses and various commodities. If we think about the the kind of wealth and trade that is happening in the 18th century that is really happening because of the, the work of uh, this group of free Black and enslaved people in these transatlantic ports. So thinking about who's having access then to those faces drawn on those barrels, that is a, a Black audience, uh, not an audience of Gilbert Stewart. And so uh, for me, that was a, a way to begin to think about how art could operate uh, against the the kind of premise for which it was made, if, if we want to see it that way, that Thurston as an enslaved man is responsible for producing these barrels. But he's also in some ways an iconoclast. He's uh, putting his own mark, his own subjectivity onto a physical form that is circulating around the Atlantic Rim and being seen by other enslaved people of African descent. So this kind of mode of communication and this subjective response to an image uh, is, a, is an invitation to operate outside of this moment of enslavement. So thinking about subjectivity and, and the assertion of personhood. I also think a little bit about what those portraits might have looked like vis-a-vis European portraiture, because Stewart says that the the faces that Thurston sketches show the expressions of the passions. And so that's not what Stewart's portraits do. That's not an Anglo-American view of the portrait as showing this very refined, uh, seemingly closed off, non-expressive face. So I talk a little bit in the book about whether we might be able to compare these now non-existent faces to other forms of cultural production by folks uh, in the African diaspora. So could we compare these to the so-called face jugs that get produced in the 19th century by enslaved and free black potters in South Carolina? Could we think about these according to other systems of artistic knowledge and other ways of producing images? So is this part of a production of a kind of Black Atlantic, as opposed to what Stuart kind of tries to, to encourage us to see it as being? This is one of the most interesting elements of the book, and you don't do it only in Address of Thurston. So maybe before we go on, I should ask, how do you and perhaps how might we grapple with the question of how to assess the influence and impact of artistic production that we have not and really cannot see? So this is really one of the central questions that I have thought a lot about as this book project has begun and gone on. I think I'm I'm really lucky in the sense that a lot of folks across the humanities, so in English, in Black studies, in history, in art history, have been thinking about what happens when uh, we know that something was produced, when we know that an artwork was made, but it is no longer extant. A lot of this is centered around questions about the archive. So recognizing the the very limited and tainted nature of archives, thinking about who has power in the period and therefore what they survive, what, what survives, what they keep, uh, what records are important to them and therefore what gets preserved. And the ways that those give a, a very limited indicator of, of what's actually happening. So in reading uh, really wonderful folks like Um, Marissa Fuentes, like Sadia Hartman, folks who have really interrogated the nature of how we as historians, as scholars now, can write about a past uh, where we know that the full picture that has come down in visual, in material, in documentary archives is not complete. So thinking along, along the lines that they have laid out, 
of trying to, I think about it as a phrase that uh, for me has is, is been really helpful is this notion of an active absence. So not trying to fill an absence, not saying, well, we know what this looked like. It must have been exactly like this. Instead, trying to, I use triangulate um, just because it, I think it gives a sense of multiple points of reference that can provide a suggestion, but not a concrete picture. So trying to tie together various forms of evidence that the little traces that do remain, whether they be maybe visual or whether they may be material or whether they may be a document, putting those together to try and, and suggest something while still being really honest to a reader, to someone who is, uh, you know, confronting that absence uh, to say, this is what I think is here, but I, I don't really know. But this is my best guess. So that's a process that's very tentative in some ways. I, in, in writing the introduction and with talking with the editor, we kind of decided to, to introduce a, a section talking about why I use likely and maybe and perhaps and possibly so often, because that's not something that you oftentimes see, I think, in, in much art historical scholarship. And for me as author, that was really important to indicate, you know, this is an argument that I'm making, but it has to necessarily be inconclusive. And so I want to, to be able to signal that. That notion of active absence is also one that coming from Titus Kafar, who's a contemporary artist who a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. And he uses that notion in describing his own artworks as being this um, his, his artistic process as being, you know, both indicating what is gone and what is present. And for me as author, that was uh, so, such a really helpful way of thinking about what I was trying to accomplish, just suggesting but not definitively stating. So another pathway you build into considering the absent is that you ask us to, quote, preconceive of 18th and 19th century depictions, artworks that most often featured and that were overwhelmingly made for white patrons as part of African-American cultural production. What are some of the ways in which we might consider artworks made, especially by white artists, for white patrons as part of Black cultural production? So I think for me, and maybe this is part of coming from a, a material culture studies background, is that where I tend to get really interested in thinking about artworks is in thinking about their, their materiality, their physical placement, their kind of persistence through time. And so the focus of the book is, is really on the painted portrait. And when we think about portraits, I think we oftentimes kind of assume that the people that they were most meaningful for were really the patron who decided to pay for them, you know, the artist who's, who's credited with completing them, and then maybe the viewer, right? And so as I was beginning to, to think about how artworks functioned in the 18th and 19th centuries in the United States, these are artworks that I'm discussing, many of which are in spaces where enslaved people are working, are carrying out daily tasks. So viewership for me was one of the first places where I started to, to really begin to push at you know, why, why is it that we've allowed voluntary kind of patrons, voluntary viewers, as being the people who determine what an artwork's meaning is or was in the past? So enslaved people, for instance, in plantation spaces are 
we might think of them as involuntary consumers, right? They're visually experiencing artworks that they didn't choose, artworks that might not represent them personally, and yet they are some of the most consistent viewers of those images. So once I started to think about this notion of a kind of involuntary viewer, that really, for me, activated thinking about portraits as having this kind of multivalent function, that they could have meaning for those beyond whom paid for them or who were pictured in them, but for everybody who had visual access to them. And part of my, my thinking is also kind of stretching those portraits out through time. So thinking about those who contributed to making paintings, for instance. So the, the first chapter of the book traces the work of a number of enslaved men in port cities in the colonial and early republic periods who were grinding pigments, who were mixing paints, men who were of African descent who were enslaved by Anglo-American artists who might have been contributing in various ways to their portrait painting. And so those are people who definitely contributed to some of these early artworks, and yet are not, you know, have not historically been considered as part of uh, who made that work. So for me, this is kind of a, a project of expanding, thinking outward uh, beyond that kind of uh, usual triad of voluntary makers, makers, viewers, and patrons that, that we've tended to think about in art history and thinking more broadly about interaction with images. So I think that's a pretty good introduction to some of the philosophical constructs that undergird, you know, the couple hundred pages of the book. Is it more than a couple hundred pages? The um, 300 something pages of the book. So let's talk about some, you know, more specific works. One of the first specific artists you introduce and discuss is a black artist named Prince Dima. Who was he and to what network does he open your analysis? So Prince Dima is, I think, an absolutely kind of exceptional character, exceptional in the sense that he is an enslaved man of African descent uh, living in colonial Boston, and he's also a practicing portrait painter. And so Dima is someone who also exceptionally for this period receives training from a portrait painter in London. So this is unusual in this early American context uh, for somebody to, to have training from a London painter. Dima is in some ways really exceptional because of his professional status as an enslaved man. One of the points I, I want to bring out and, and what I talk about in the larger chapter is that I think Dima helps us to understand a range of black men, uh, many of whom, most of whom are enslaved in port cities who are doing this work of pigment processing and paint mixing and house painting who are engaged in the construction trades. So for me, Prince Dima begins to open up the ways in which the category of a professional artist was being defined very narrowly in both colonial America and later in scholarship as scholars have tried to sort of place attention on specific artists who they recognize as as setting themselves apart as professionals. So I'm I'm kind of talking around saying the name John Singleton Copley. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk about Copley. <laughs> Where are we? Not, not just here, but later. <laughs> <laughs> so Dima is uh, somebody who is copying some of Copley's portraits. He is somebody who is also producing portraits uh, in the style of Copley, who I think defined a kind of Boston market in this period. Dima is working in both of those. Copley does as well. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, 
So, so Dima is, is working in both of those. And he is enslaved by a family. So a Boston, uh, sorry, a New England merchant, uh, Henry Barnes, his wife, Christian Barnes, they had earlier uh, enslaved Dima's mother, uh, Daphne. And so it seems at some point, as you read Christian Barnes's really copious correspondence, they decide to purchase Dima, who had been a sailor. They then you know, work on securing training for him and then setting him up as a professional portrait painter. They present this uh, as kind of their project. I think reading between the lines of, of, their, of their letters, you get a sense that Daphne Dima, Prince Dima's mother, uh, is also uh, an advocate for this plan. And, and one can understand why that her son is a sailor by having the Barnes family purchase him. They are reunited and his kind of professional prospects become much better. Sadly, Dima... Uh, dies during the American Revolution. So what what begins as this portrait painting career before the revolution ends, he he fights as a patriot. This is really significant, I think, because the Barneses are themselves loyalists. So he has a, a different political attitude than those people who enslaved him. But he dies in an infectious as a result of an infectious disease. And so does not we don't really then therefore have portraits painted by him after the American Revolution. So it is a brief story, but I think just such a, a powerful story about an enslaved man who is is acting as a professional portrait painter. There are, as I understand it, three known paintings by Dima, one at the Met, two in an historical society in Massachusetts. We'll have images of at least one of them, the Met picture, uh, which I think listeners will recognize right away on manpodcast.com. Once you raise Dima, you transition to an enslaved black man named Cuffy. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that in an appropriate way. What was the relationship, if that's the right word, between Dima and Cuffy? So in some ways, their experiences are, are similar in that both of them are enslaved in New England. Both of them for a period are sailors. And that's really typical for men who were enslaved in New England in this period uh, to be part of, of the nautical trade. Cuffy is purchased by John Smybert, who is one of the, the earliest recognized portrait painters in, in Boston. And Smybert, based on uh, what we know of his portrait painting practice and his setting up of a color shop, a place where people could buy paint and brushes and prints, Smybert is probably using Cuffy, uh, requiring Cuffy to work uh, painting processing pigments, sorry, so making paints, grinding pigments, mixing pigment then with a binder. He seems to have been doing this both for Smybert, who's then using those paints uh, to produce portraits, but also potentially at a more almost industrial scale. So producing paint that is being used to, say, paint ships, to paint houses, to paint walls, so a, a larger kind of painting industry. We know this about Cuffy, or we can conjecture this about what Cuffy was doing while he was enslaved by Smybert, because he seeks his freedom, and Smybert places an advertisement in the hopes of someone recognizing Cuffy and returning Cuffy to him. This kind of similarities between Cuffy and Dima, in that both of them are are enslaved in the same place, that both of them are involved in artistic production. At the same time, they're they're quite different in that because Dima is purchased by a merchant and his wife, they 
are eager for Dima to begin painting portraits and to be paid for those portraits. By contrast, Cuffey really, his work seems to have been restricted to the creation of paint, uh, as opposed to the application of paint to canvas. So that that distinction then is really highlights Dima's kind of accomplishment in being able to become a professional portraitist, uh, which is quite unusual in the period. We also know that that Cuffey self-emancipates, and that suggests could be many things, right? The inherent desire for freedom, which is, you know, shared across humanity. So that's obviously a, a factor. It might indicate that processing pigments is not something that uh, he wants to do. It's quite dangerous in the sense of exposure to toxic chemicals, to dust, uh, to, to things that could have a really detrimental effect on someone's health. It could also be, Cuffey had been a sailor previously, you know, maybe this is an opportunity, perhaps even to become a sailor uh, who is a bound laborer. So somebody who is not maybe seeking his freedom at that point, but exchanging uh, being enslaved by Smybird and processing pigments uh, for being a sailor, uh, potentially with then an opportunity for freedom down the road. So this, I, I think that comparison between the two men is is really interesting in that it it kind of gives us a sense of the complex ways and the multiple ways in which enslaved men are intersecting with the creation of portrait painting in this early period, and and not just in one singular way, right? But but we can see this happening in, in lots of different ways. Before we move on to other paintings, I want to do two things here. First, let's pay off the Copley bit. What was Dima's relationship, I guess, less to Copley himself than to his work? So for me, one of the most interesting aspects of the, the Dima-Copley relationship or non-relationship comes from a letter that, that Christian Barnes writes. She is also perhaps the one who is most invested in Prince Dima becoming an artist. So she very much sees his portrait painting as, as an extension of her desire to kind of have uh, an ability to, to make money. And she writes about the fact that uh, she and her husband are looking for someone to be able to train Dima. She thinks that, uh, you know, Copley would be the best choice, but she says something along the lines of, you know, there's no way that Copley would train him. And so that kind of offhanded comment, I think, is really suggestive without ever being definitive. What we can say about Copley is that he himself is an enslaver. So uh, he enslaves people in Boston. He is also someone who is really heavily invested in asserting the professionalism of the artist profession and doing that uh, by kind of upholding its gentlemanly status. So it seems unlikely that Copley would have been interested in training an enslaved person in this profession that he is trying so desperately to keep uh, as something very elite and special. What also happens, interestingly, though, is that because Dima is able to copy from existing Copley portraits, uh, we know he makes a copy of at least one painting by Copley and, and probably more, that there's there's a possibility then that, that Dima's works are kind of circulating in this art market uh, in Boston at the time in ways that might have destabilized Copley's kind of stranglehold on that market. So for Dima, 
I think as an enslaved artist, one of the things that's interesting in that comparison as well is that Copley has not had the benefit of London training. He's quite desperate to go to London and has not done that yet. Dima, on the other hand, is taken to London and gets training uh, and then is returned by his enslavers. So Dima has the benefit of this London training that Copley does not have. However, it seems that because of Copley's prominence in the market, Dima is kind of having to fit his portraits into this visual formula that Copley has established. While I, I don't, you know, I'm not able to say that these two men at any point in time necessarily directly impacted one another. Like, I don't know that there was ever a conversation that happened between the two of them. At the same time, I, I think we can see both of them kind of responding to one another in ways that very much uh, were based upon their racial position and their social position at the time, but also this kind of conflict based on the fact uh, that both of them are producing portraits in the same market. As the book goes along, you next engage what the representation of Black enslaved people, quote, meant for the represented bond people themselves, their enslavers and others who viewed their likenesses. And your way into this address begins with Edward Savage's notorious and famed Washington family at the National Gallery of Art, a picture that it must be said the National Gallery inconceivably and bizarrely presents with mute neutrality. Where in the painting and who is the figure in the Savage that you address in the book and how do you address him? It is such a famous painting. And one of the things that I, I didn't know about it before starting the book is just how long it is has been on public view. So it gets it gets painted in Philadelphia in the around 1780s, and it and it goes on view in Philadelphia. Then you know it goes to to New York and to Boston. But basically, this is a artwork that has been on view as long as the nation itself, which I, I think is is amazing in in the sense that it's just such a, a deeply racialized and and really very problematic in that sense image to represent the United States. And I say that because uh, of the inclusion of a black figure at the right who is wearing the Washington family livery and therefore I think in in the context of the time we understand as being an enslaved waiter or enslaved manservant and that figure's identity has shifted multiple times over this painting's long life story of its own when Edward Savage the artist paints it uh, so he paints this really monumental work to go on view in his museum it very quickly gets made into prints and those prints are tremendously popular and circulate around the United States and also in Europe. And at that point, Savage, you know, identifies each figure in the print with the exception of that black figure. And so from the beginning, there's this act of, of, of unnaming that uh, the other figures are identified and this figure is left uh, without uh, a name. Over time, people began to associate that figure with William Lee. Uh, who was Washington's enslaved manservant during the American Revolution, who accompanied him to the Revolutionary War, who then, due to injury, ended up being a shoemaker at Mount Vernon. And in recent years, we've we've come to, to think that that identification doesn't make sense. When the painting was created, William Lee by then is a middle-aged man. He uh, was reportedly a stockier person. He by then had white hair. He was also, due to injury, unable to stand. So it seems really unlikely then that he would be the person represented in this painting. So in the, in the book, I make the case that this figure could be Christopher Shields. Christopher Shields 
was Washington's second enslaved manservant. He was one of the nine enslaved people who Washington brought with him from his Virginia plantation, Mount Vernon, to the president's houses in New York and then in Philadelphia, uh, which is where this work was created. So that black figure in the back right of the Savage group portrait, a couple other things about it worth worth noting, particularly given what I want to ask about next. The figure is in the literal back shadows of the painting. The figure is almost entirely encased in shadow. The figure, the black figure, is also denied dimensionality, whereas the visages of Washington and the members of his family are painted in a way to suggest three dimensions. The black figure in the back right is pictorially flattened and denied texture or humanity. And that is a failure of representation that extends through the the picture's life and print culture and through, um, as I think you note in the book, the many painted copies after either the painting or painted copies after the print. I I mentioned that this savage is at the National Gallery. And, And hanging next to it on the other side of a doorway is a nearly contemporary picture by Benjamin West. The Benjamin West is from 1776. It's called Colonel Guy Johnson and Karangianti, whose anglicized name was Captain David Hill. He was a Mohawk who was a Mohawk and and Iroquois Nations leader. What jumps out to me about the, the two pictures is they both employ a really similar pictorial strategy, which is putting the person not constructed into whiteness and the privileges that European Americans constructed for themselves. It presents them both with the same pictorial strategy, behind, comma, in shadow, comma, and builds an argument about the relative centrality of that person to the narrative depicted in the picture through that strategy of building secondarily. As you, in the book, think about what the representation of black enslaved people, because your book doesn't get into the representation of Native Americans or enslaved Native Americans, Are you interested in these pictorial tropes, if that's the right word, that extend across subject and, for that matter, subjugated address? Um, I'm so glad you brought the both the kind of physical placement of the savage work in the National Gallery now and then its relationship to the other painting, the West painting in that gallery. Um, and I, and I absolutely think you're right in terms of the the kind of visual, we might think about it as visual othering that's sort of happening in both of those works. I mean, I think for me, one of the things that that, I, that resonates is this this idea of the use of the use of depiction to kind of actively deny someone's social identity. And that that seems to be happening for me as I look at both of those works that, you know, yes, the at one level, the inclusion of both the indigenous figure and the enslaved black person in these images is a way to kind of amplify the subject position of whiteness. And so I, I think in the book, I uh, draw a comparison to the savage portrait and uh, some of the silver medallions that uh, Washington is 
distributing to, to Native Nations leaders as they come to the new nation's capital in Philadelphia to negotiate with the new United States. And so the pictorial imagery that is on those medallions, the silver works, is really similar to both, I think, uh, both, the, both of these portraits in that it is kind of intentionally trying to assert the, the power of Washington as president, as white male enslaver, as settler colonialist through this visual kind of representation. I think it, it, these are interestingly complicated as, as we think about what portraiture is and what portraiture means, because in, I think it, not so much with the, the medal, which is really, I think, a, a very highly stereotyped and kind of cursory indication of a, of a Native person, an Indigenous person. But with both of the portraits of the National Gallery, there is a physical, a, an attempt to represent a bodily specific individual. And then the insertion of that, you know, realistic, intentionally realistic representation into this very stratified, racialized power dynamic. I think for for us today as viewers, when we think about portraits and realistic representation, I think we're accustomed to thinking about that as a way of asserting humanity, as a way of recognizing a shared humanity. And as I think about the Savage painting in the book, you know, if we think about the reality of the 18th century, both politically, socially, and racially, you know, the the attempt there is not to, to recognize humanity of enslaved people, but an attempt really to deny that humanity. And so I think these visual images then, you know, operate in these very, very complex ways to kind of weave together fictionalization with realistic depiction, with ideology, political imperative, and, and one that's fundamentally uh, for both of those works, I think, founded, founded on unfreedom. The final chapter of the book discusses iconoclasm, the destruction by a subjugated person or persons or order, their destruction of art valued by the dominant order. As you detail in, in, in I think, the most interesting and thorough way I've ever read, iconoclasm was rife across the South during and immediately after the Civil War. So before we talk about how iconoclasm worked, Let's talk about how iconoclasm prevented, iconoclasm that was prevented, has helped to extend crucial pictorial constructions of whiteness and the defense of the alleged necessity of enslavement and white supremacy. And that's actually more or less how you start the chapter. And I think the picture with which you do that is the perfect picture with which to do it. And that is our old friend John Singleton Copley's very great portrait of Mr. and Mrs. Ralph Izard now at the MFA Boston. What does that picture show and how did its preservation, its intentional preservation by the family, maintain a narrative across American history and art history? Hopefully this will be one of those images that, that folks will have a chance to look at because this is such a, a really visually resplendent image. And it's, as as you look at it, I think it just uh, very much proclaims this kind of 18th century uh, use of clothing and accessories and painted portraits themselves as this kind of status definition and signal of luxury and wealth. So this painting, for me, is most interesting, though, in its 19th century iteration, in a sense. So by then, it is owned by Charles Ezard Manigault. It is displayed in his townhouse in South Carolina. 
Manigo is one of those white enslavers living in Charleston, who, as the Union army is bombarding the city, is really worried about what to do with his paintings, including this one. And so he boxes it up, he has it boxed up, and he has it taken away from the city in order to protect it. And he also has his paintings, um, many of them taken to his plantation, Silk Hope, which he imagines erroneously to be kind of outside the danger zone. It is, in fact, a a place where enslaved people who Manigo had enslaved discover his paintings and commit acts of iconoclasm against them. And so we know this because of Manigo's account of, of what happens to his artworks. He is really, his own tone is really vitriolic and very highly racist. And yet his source is Uh, His writing is really a tremendous source in terms of documenting what was happening both at Silk Hope but at other plantations around, around South Carolina as white enslavers are leaving, formerly enslaved people are left, and they begin to engage in, in acts of destruction, creative destruction, uh, repurposing, appropriation, subversion, a whole range of artistic and really affective responses to these paintings that in many ways have formed a kind of backdrop uh, to their enslavement. So the, the, the Copley painting that the family mindfully and carefully saved might almost, I think you could argue it is the first and most important or the first important work of American art in the construction of whiteness. It essentially presents two wealthy North Americans against a backdrop referencing classical Greece and Rome. It is an active participant in the Southern narrative that the United States is where, or the the budding United States, the picture was made in 1775, was where Greek and Roman republicanism would be reborn and extended, carrying forward a narrative that is in you know, Smybert's painting of George Berkeley that we, that we mentioned earlier. But, but key to that narrative for Southerners in the 1770s and, and thereafter was that enslavement was necessary because if great white men were going to have the time to do the work of the affairs of state, to be active in politics, they needed enslaved people to do physical labor so that they could be free to do intellectual labor. This was a a core Southern idea for decades, and of course it is an idea that that begins to be challenged by Jacksonian democracy and which is ultimately overthrown in the obvious events of the 1860s. It is an idea that will come back strong in the 1870s when Charleston itself led the construction of lost cause ideology and then, as, as, as we know, in the Jim Crow era, that idea comes back in a different form, and that is that for white greatness and national greatness to be achieved or, or, or for the nation to be made great again, the dominant class must subjugate lesser people, such as black people. So the survival of this Copley plays an active role in the maintenance and, and, and rebirth of a failed ideology. The painting is important and its survival is at least as important. I will shut up now and get out of the way and ask you (laughs) if you could give us an example or two of what was destroyed in that 1860s, 70s iconoclasm and what impact that destruction may have had. 
So I guess for me, one of the most amazing kind of things is just the the range of different actions. And I guess in some ways that's not surprising at all because we're talking about uh, a huge number of people, all of whom had had individual responses and feelings and emotions. But uh, to give a, a couple of examples um, from what Manigo describes, there's certainly a, a scratching of faces. You mean you mean on paintings? Yes. So if we're thinking about the the various forms of iconoclasm that are taking place in this civil war moment as both uh, newly emancipated and not yet quite emancipated African-Americans on plantations kind of for the first time are able to physically and affectively enact emotion upon these artworks. And so one of the kind of very striking things that we see is a scratching of the faces of painted portraits, thinking particularly with uh, Southern art collections, portraits that featured enslavers' ancestors or enslavers themselves. Um, so we see with um, some of these paintings, they're described as being, quote, uh, disfigured or scratched or torn. If we look at, at conservation that's done later on some of these works, there seems to be attention specifically concentrated on eyes, on the painted figure's eyes. We also see some paintings being destroyed outright, some paintings being just left outside to the elements and then exposed. Some paintings that appear to have been reinstalled in formerly enslaved people's dwellings. So two canvases from the, the Manigo family have nail holes in the center that align with his description of formerly enslaved people taking these back and putting them in their own spaces. And in utilitarian ways sometimes, including, as say, a fire screen, in, in ways that deny the picture its power, agency, quality, all of it. Yeah, I, I think absolutely the common thread that I see with those acts of iconoclasm is a is an intentional subversion, both of the power of enslavers, uh, their power to command other people's labor, their power as well of surveillance, uh, which is something that we know had been uh, such a dominant part of plantation enslavement in the 19th century. So a denial of that kind of power to supervise visually and also a, a, a subversion of the Confederacy itself. This is, I think, these iconoclastic acts are as much political statements about the desire to see slavery ended, to see the Confederacy fail, as they are statements about denying the past claim over enslaved people's lives. Um, so this very kind of amazing overlay of these actions intentionally undoing the, the harm uh, that these past uh, kind of visual regimes had been attempting to assert. For me, that's so amazing, um, not only because uh, those actions are taking place in a way that, that points to the desire for social justice, but also because they are an amazing window into enslaved people's knowledge about portraiture before that moment, right? Uh, so this kind of moment of political action becomes a chance to respond to paintings that previously within enslavement, uh, somebody would have been brutally punished, uh, if we can even use that word, as a result of having interfered with an artwork. And so this kind of points to the, the power that these images had, the knowledge that enslaved people had about portraiture, despite the fact that, that under slavery, they were not able to own these images themselves. They were not able oftentimes to have representations of themselves or their loved ones made. 
And so that that act of iconoclasm then in some ways is kind of a, a culmination of a much longer, longstanding knowledge of, of art. Jennifer Van Horn, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. On view through February 19th, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark DeSouvereau Steel Like Paper, an exhibition that explores the artist's six-decades-long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Betsy Kornhauser returns to the program to discuss her new installation of portrait miniatures in the Metropolitan Museum of Art's American Galleries. Portrait miniatures, often tiny watercolor pictures on ivory, were popular in the United States in the late 18th and 19th centuries. The production of portrait miniatures was one form of production particularly open to women artists. Betsy Kornhauser, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, thanks for having me on again. What are portrait miniatures and why are they so often on ivory? Well, you know, they're, they have an ancient, you know, really early history. You know, the idea of doing very small, you know, intricate work goes back to medieval manuscripts and then advanced to doing very small personal portraits on vellum. But it was actually since today we're going to be talking about women miniaturists. It was actually a woman artist who first came up with the idea of using watercolor on ivory. And that was the Venetian 18th century artist Rosalba Carrera. She had been doing small miniatures on vellum. And there was there was always a desire to have intimate small portraits that were very personal for loved ones, you know, whether it was you know, marriage, you know, miniatures, the birth of a child, or, you know, a memorial. And it was something that people held as a personal image when their loved one was away or gone or, and so it has a very long history, and really starts to emerge strongly in the 18th century. And it was really in England that it takes off in the 18th century. And the roots of American miniature portrait painting really comes from that tradition. And miniatures were the purpose of using a very thin slice of, and I'm going to call it elephant tusk ivory, is because it was a hard surface that had this beautiful translucent whiteness. 
And miniature painters would mix the watercolor with various gums, etc. And also they would prepare the surface of the ivory. They would sort of abrade it slightly so it, it could hold, you know, the watercolor medium. But mm-hmm. what it allowed you to do was to have a translucent and beautiful depiction of usually it's a portrait. Yeah. Almost all of the, I think maybe with one exception, all of the 33 pictures in your presentation were made by a a woman, as you mentioned a moment ago. What are the reasons, if there were, were women particularly likely to work in this format and why? There are a number of reasons. The art form, because it's very intimate and very personal, you know, it's, it's like a very emotional, personal art form. Early on, women were seen as, you know, adept at doing such a kind of emotional depiction. And also the tiny scale, the brushes are minuscule. Your your brush strokes are done in sort of a, you know, stipple, very Mm. tiny art form. Women's hands were seen as being particularly well-suited. But I think the most important point to be made is that it was an art form that was not, you know, it was a lesser art, not terribly lucrative. And women were basically not, you know, allowed to be easel painters in early time. I mean, in Italy, there are lots of, you know, exceptions to the rule. But if we're looking at England or uh, the American colonies, and even into the 19th century, women were not, they were kind of excluded from the lucrative uh, professional art form of easel painting. And so this was an area that if they wanted to be professional and make money, it was open to them. They were given permission, let's say, in the male-dominated art world. And so if you look at the history of miniature painting, it you know, most of the major hallmarks are accomplished by women. The first professional miniature painter in America was Mary Roberts, who arrived in Charleston in the 1730s and became a leading miniature painter by the 1750s in Charleston. And you just see this over and over again, that it's it's one arena where women were given permission. They could make a living. They were often controlled if they were married. There were lots of interesting um, stories of both British and American women miniature painters where they it, it was frowned upon for them to be alone in a room with a male sitter because it was too intimate. So there would have to be like a chaperone or whatever. And many of the most accomplished women miniature painters never married. And we see this across art history in general, because they were, you know, if they were married and had children, there were terrible time constraints. And miniature painting was complicated just as oil painting in that you, you know, you had to prepare your pigments and you used a tiny little palette. And I mean, there was a lot of preparation and, and the sittings were, you know, arduous. So it's it's kind of a fascinating field that has been below the radar. In recent times, starting to get attention from young scholars, which I'm happy to see happening. One last question on the medium and form before we get into some specifics. So within your presentation at the Met, 
there are almost darn near 200 years worth of painting. <laughs> Why do you think the form endured even after women in the mid to late 19th century began making, you know, paintings of oil on canvas? What you see in the trajectory is that, you know, it's it emerges as early as the mid 18th century in the American colonies. It really flourishes during the post-revolutionary period. Then the invention of the daguerreotype, really, the profession takes a big hit, whether you're a male or female miniature painter. But I think women, it was the same, the same issues, you know, that women were really excluded for the most part across the 19th century from engaging in the major genres of like national landscape painting, for example. We're beginning to find many more women who are doing landscape art, but they very much were below the radar. And they were occasionally admitted to the national arts organizations, but it was it was tough. I mean, some of the women in my exhibition were, you know, it rarely, but a few were admitted to the National Academy of Design, for example. But so I think it, in the late 19th and early 20th century, a group of women formed the American Miniature Society in New York, and most of the members were women, and they had, it was like their alternate response to, you know, the American Academy or the, you know, Art Students League or whatever. They had their own society, and they exhibited and they flourished. And interestingly, the Met has probably the largest collection of watercolor miniatures by American artists held by any museum. And within that, 125 are by women. I think we have about wow. 650 overall. Wow. And many of the, the works by women entered the Met's collection in the late 19th and early 20th century as gifts from this American Miniature Society. Your presentation features some of the major painters of portrait miniatures. Let's talk about a couple of them. Sarah Goodrich. Who is Sarah Goodrich? Well, I've been obsessed with Sarah Goodrich since I started <laughs> <laughs> and saw Beauty Revealed. But she's a really interesting case. That, and her life touches on a lot of the issues I've brought up. She, you know, emerged in Boston in the early 19th century. And many women miniature painters in the early period were very adept at obtaining assistance from more prominent male artists. They sought instruction and mentorship and then began to flourish on their own. And so she approached Gilbert Stewart in Boston in the early decades of the 19th century. And he was very impressed with her talent. And he mentored her. He introduced her to Daniel Webster, who becomes an important person in her life. And she would become the leading miniature painter for much of the first half of the 19th century in Boston. You know, she she ruled the art form and had a flourishing career. And like many of these women miniature painters, she didn't marry. I think it was a, a personal choice. And she was able to finance the lives of her very large extended family, her parents, her mm -hmm. siblings. She taught her sister Eliza to be a miniature painter. She was really, really good. And you would be interested to know that she was a close friend of the Emerson family. There and she go. painted miniatures of Ralph Waldo, two of his wife. And she painted 
an absolutely exquisite miniature of a recently freed, previously enslaved woman in Boston, this beautiful work that is in the collection of the Yale Art Gallery. You know, so I guess the thing that makes her most famous is that she had an affair with Daniel Webster. She was introduced to him through Gilbert Stewart in Stewart's studio. And Webster commissioned her to do a number of miniatures of his children and himself over the course of their lives. And there's a lot of evidence based on the many, many letters that exist. Uh, Unfortunately, her letters to Webster don't exist, but Webster's letters to her are, you know, there are many of them. And there is an intimacy in the letters that really indicates they must have had an intimate relationship. And when Webster's first wife died in, I think it was 1827, her friendship with him had, you know, really taken hold for years by that point. And he was in the midst of really, you know, a rising political career, and he needed money to fuel that career. And so he married an older, wealthy woman from Albany. And in the following year, Sarah left Massachusetts, went to Washington, D.C., and delivered this very famous work called Beauty Revealed by the family. And it was a self-portrait of her breasts. It was, it is the most extraordinary object, and it is somewhat unique. It's a disembodied self-portrait that she presented in a case for his eyes only. It's one of these works of art that you have to see in person to really appreciate it's the power of it. It's like, it's just amazing. And it's very intimate. She includes like a mole on her left breast, knowing that he would, you know, recognize that. And it was always thought to be somewhat unique in American art. If you think about portraits by self-portraits by women artists, it's very hard to find erotic self-portraits by women artists. There are certainly, you know, a lot of nude portraits by men of women, but the idea of it being so intimate, so personal and disembodied made it, it's sort of the darling object of contemporary artists. They, they just, you know, are completely fascinated by it. And when I started doing research on it, the Met owns it. I did sort of oral history about its history. It descended in Webster's family. During his lifetime, he kept it and then descended. But I began to tie it to eye miniatures that were flourishing in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. It was a... Let me quickly interrupt. There are two eye miniatures in your show. That's uh, right. One by Emily Drayton Taylor and one by Edward Green Malbone. Right. And that was this sort of very short-lived phenomenon of painting, having a miniature artist paint a miniature of the eye of your loved one. They were used also for other purposes like mourning, et cetera. But it first emerges as they were called lover's eyes and you would exchange the eye of your lover and it was a private thing. And the lover couldn't be identified by anyone but you. And it was this incredible phenomenon And I'm about to buy a whole group of them for the Met, for the American Wing. And I'm very excited about that. But they're they're this amazing thing that lasted for about 20 years. And she was more than likely aware of them. 
And I don't know whether it inspired this extraordinary and unique. It's really a self-fashioning. And in my mind, it was kind of her statement to him, like, okay, you can marry this older woman who will support your political career, but this is what you may not have anymore, or, you know, (laughs) sort of like in your face. I like to think of it that way, but I have to say that's my own personal interpretation of it. But it's very bold. And I feel like it it symbolizes the fact that she self-fashioned her entire career as an artist at a time when women were really not allowed to be professional painters and make a living, not only make a living for yourself, but for your entire family in a very conservative town like Boston. I think it really is a symbol of who she was. And that she had an affair with this man rather than marrying and having a conventional lifestyle. And I think a lot of those elements you will find in many of the lives of the women that I represent in this installation. We mentioned Mary Roberts of Charleston, South Carolina, a bit earlier. A number of, I mean, a great number of the women in this show, at least through the 19th century, lived and made work in port cities. Is that simply because early American wealth was congregated around port cities for mercantile reasons, or is there some other reason for it? I feel like it was, you know, if you look at portraiture in general, you know, you needed a studio, you needed a respectable studio setting to engage in miniature portrait painting. And again, there's that whole issue of intimacy where you're, you're in a room and you're enclosed it could be a man it could be a woman but it's like a very intimate thing and you needed to have all your art it's not an art form where you could be an itinerant i don't think it wouldn't have been easy to carry all this equipment around that you needed it's a very refined art form so and then of course to get while the miniatures were far less expensive than oil paintings were they were still you know a luxury item and so i feel like that there are a few examples like Mrs. Moses Russell. She was what you might describe as a folk miniature painter. We have examples in our show. And she would go sometimes to smaller towns, but she was mainly based in Boston as well. So if there's one family that might have been expected to produce professional women artists who made oil paintings on canvas and might might have been able to have whatever career that they chose, it would surely be the Peel family. Absolutely. Of, of kind of Baltimore slash Philadelphia. There are portrait miniatures here by both James Peel and Anna Claypool Peel. Given that they surely had other options, why did they work in this medium? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, it, you know, James and Raphael also took on still eye painting, which was considered very much a lesser art. I think the Peels, you know, they, I feel like they followed their heart to some extent, and they engaged in large-scale painting, you know, portrait painting, as well as miniatures. And, I mean, it was a fascinating art form. And there was, you know, they also did, you know, they had the physiognotrace machine in their museum and produce I mean I think they were game for any anything and everything and there's something really special about miniatures they're like they're so personal and so beautiful and you're working on this slice of you know ivory elephant tusk 
using tiny, tiny brush strokes. And I'm sure the the patriarchs, you know, Charles Wilson and James, understood that the female members were going to face the same, you know, obstacles that all women faced. And so it's not surprising that they taught mm. their daughters to do still life painting and miniature painting. There's plenty in the 19th century. And given that I am wont to situate myself in the 19th century, I'm going to kick myself forward. So these these 19th century pictures often feature just or only the head of the person in the, in the miniature portrait. As we get into the 20th century, that really changes. A good example of that is a really striking picture by Lucy Stanton, a painting of a North Carolina mountain woman, yeah. which kind of features that mountain woman, you know, from above her head down to her lap. Why is it that, you know, more of people, if you will, become represented? And maybe what about that Stanton um, most catches your eye? Well, I think it was a question of competition. You know, post-daguerreotype photography, all artists had to, you know, grapple with competing with photographs. And they were, you know, they were cheap. Many miniature painters became photographers, actually. And so I think when these women, when there was, you know, I like to call it a renaissance in the late 19th century miniature painting, they knew they had to grapple with this competitive art form. And so they started to use much larger ivories. Sometimes they would piece them together and they would make their compositions more complex. And I think it was just, that was the main reason, competition and, you know, wanting to show their talent as well. And, you know, she's an interesting artist. I was interested in looking at all the women I, I put on view and the others in our collection that they really cover the United States. I mean, they are, mm. a lot of them are based in New York, Boston, and interestingly, Southern cities, but- Charleston, but there's still a lot in Charleston. Uh, yeah, Charleston, it's an English, kind of like an English art form. I think that's part of it. But then you see them, you know, in the Midwest, in California. And in this case, you know, Lucy Stanton painted in Georgia. She painted- African-American subjects and mountain people. And so she's kind of, you know, unusual in that. And really, I'm really taken with the way, you know, she, the, it's not, it, she turns the subject in this sort of romantic, romanticized pose with a rustic chair that she's seated in simply dressed, you know, to represent different types of Americans. Yeah. So it is, it's a really interesting work. It's a really good example of how the medium, if you will, was competing with daguerreotypey yeah. or responding anyway to it, because not only is the figure in the miniature turned at a eh, not quite three quarter angle, but maybe you know forty five yes. degree angle. There's an arm of the chair that's jutting toward us, suggesting a third dimension, the same third dimension that was offered by stereographs or or daguerreotypes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. The other way these women competed in the late 19th century, I was really blown away by the period frames. I, I mean, I, as a curator, have been doing Let me interrupt with like a really great example of that. There's a picture in the show by Mira Edgerly called The Dodge Children of yeah. Detroit. Which and has she... The most amazing frame. She <laughs> designed her own frames. She designed that frame. And she was amazing. She had a studio in Paris for a long time. And then came back to New York and all of her papers are at Columbia. 
And she really, all of these women deserve much more attention they, than they get. But this was, you know, she designed her own frames and you can close the doors on that frame, you know, and still see through the fretwork. It's just amazing. And then there's another example by one of my favorite miniatures by Lucia Fairchild Fuller. And that one is, you know, it's like a typical, this, her miniature of Clara Fuller, her daughter, was done in 1898. And she hired the very famous modernist frame maker, George Off, who worked with Georgia O'Keeffe to design the O'Keeffe frame. And there's a label on the back of that frame, you know, from George Off Studio in New York. So they were competing with photography by taking the characteristics of paintings, like really beautiful period frames and larger slices of ivory, sometimes piecing the ivory together. And then like in this case, this young girl is holding this unbelievably beautifully rendered doll. And she's working in an impressionist style and has a Japanese print in the background. It's just, it's just stunning. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really great one. We will have, I think all of these on manpodcast.com. So is this an area in which scholarly practice is growing? I'm really happy to say that several young scholars that have worked with me here in the American wing, and I have to say, we're one of the few museums that shows miniatures on a regular basis. So they were exposed to this art form. And many of you are familiar with Diana Greenwald's new book on, you know, really figuring out what was actually shown in the 19th century. It's called Painting by Numbers data-driven histories of 19th century art published in 2021. And one of her chapters is entitled, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? Artistic Labor and Time Constraint in 19th Century America. And, you know, she makes the point, which really dawned on her while working here, is that women were restricted to light-sensitive materials for the most part. They worked in textiles and works on paper or ivory. And, you know, so when people look at how many works museums actually have in their collection. They often neglect to count those behind the scenes objects because they're rarely on view. And it's very, very hard to get those numbers. So, you know, we have like this vast number of watercolor miniatures by women, which are very much below the radar. So I think she makes the point that women exhibited, you know, a lot of works of art in the 19th century. And museums did not acquire them nearly at the rate of works by men. But you have to look at the hidden collections of textiles and works on paper. So Diana is doing really good work. And then the issue of ivory itself, a young scholar at Columbia, Catherine Fine, has published a number of articles and given talks on the issue of ivory tied to, you know, the really horrific history of the killing of elephants and, you know, enslaved Africans who had to deal with the issue of obtaining ivory. So that's a new way of looking at these miniatures, as well as whiteness. You know, the translucent white ivory was a perfect medium for creating translucent white skin. Her dissertation is tackling that topic. Yeah. You know, and, and in the early 19th century, one of America's first contributions to a transatlantic scientific, pseudoscientific discourse is a scholar who would later become the president of Princeton, what we now call Princeton, would do research in which he argued that the whiter 
an individual's skin, the better a person they were. Oh, yeah. A, a question which I suspect probably had an impact on early 19th century portraiture in the, in the United States and not only on ivories. So yeah, there's there's a lot of um, room here. I, you mentioned only a few American museums exhibit the work. I think the three that come to mind for me, and, and add, add more if I'm forgetting a few, are Yale and the Gibbs in Charleston. And the Gibbs. And the Smithsonian, Sam, you know, does as well. They have quite a large collection. Yeah. Betsy Kornhauser, thank you. Yeah. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.